I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy, where we from the Takshashila Institution discuss diverse aspects of public policy. I'm your host Satya Shahu, a research analyst at Takshashila Institution, and I'm today joined by my colleague Saurabh Todi. Saurabh has recently worked on the issue of strategic vulnerabilities that exist in the semiconductor space in India. In today's episode, we will dive into the concept of the strategic technological vulnerability, which, by the way, refers to the gaps or weaknesses in a country's ability to access or use certain technologies that are vital for its national interest. We will look at some examples of these vulnerabilities, but particularly in the context of global semiconductor industry, which is now facing increasing geopolitical challenges and disruptions as countries and companies alike are moving away from China in their pursuance of their China plus one strategies. We will also discuss how India can possibly address its own shortfall in this domain and what steps it can possibly take to enhance its capabilities and resilience. Without further ado, let's jump headfirst into the discussion. So. Let me start off with your current work, Saurabh. In a framework that you are currently writing, you speak about three stages in the life cycle of technologies. These include research and development, standardization and regulation, and commercial deployment. Can you briefly explain how this assessment helped develop a framework for deciding what a vulnerability is? Feel free to use an example about semiconductors. First of all, th- th- thank you for having me, Satya. Yeah, I think if you see it that way, any technology, you could end up divide it into a life cycle with three stages. The first one is the research and development phase where the technology, you know, is in a very nascent stage. It usually would find its uh, origin in academia or uh, like uh, researchers or research institutes doing primary research when they kind of, uh, when the researchers finalize a broad framework, a theoretical framework, then I think the industry then moves on to, you know, like the next stage. So for example, the language learning processes, which we now are more acquainted with, like chat GPT and everything, those are LLM models are based on the research done on like neural links and uh, artificial neural networks and stuff like that, right? So that is uh, something that you would uh, do in the first stage, which is R&D. Then comes stage which you will which you can broadly call as regulation and standardization. So here, for example, as technology is maturing, uh, as there are more efforts towards commercializing it, efforts are then made by both industry and the government and also I think somewhat academia to try to regulate it or at least standardize it in a way that uh, if the product is global, there is a, a like a, some degree of interoperability and ease of using the technology across borders. And then the final stage, I think, which bleeds into this second stage also is the commercial deployment part where you have the technology which has been proven to be commercially viable. There are some enabling regulations and standards that then push further adoption of a technology in the broader domain. So broadly, you could classify a technology's life cycle in these three broad processes. And obviously, each country or a country would have weaknesses and strengths in different aspects of these three stages. Right. So that brings us to the idea of comparative advantage between countries. 
So, and I suppose this takes on a grander hue when you talk about global value chains, which occur in a very fragmented manner among countries and companies that specialize in each stage of the value chain. So when it comes to semiconductors, um, how do you say uh, this assessment fares in terms of India's shortfalls of any such vulnerabilities? Like India's dependence on any such technology and how it, it has failed to plug that funnel? So, I mean, I mean, again, at a very broad level, we like India did miss out on the research and development aspect because India was not like among the top countries doing research on semiconductors. I mean, at least like more cutting edge one. At the same time, because India was not a major player in the semiconductor space, it also did not play as big of a role in uh, like the standards that have been set and have been evolving uh, ever since in this domain as obviously the technology itself matures and becomes uh, more uh, high tech. But if you see, uh, given the move towards supply chain resilience, move away from like uh, supply chain issues and the China plus one strategy, India has the opportunity to play a major role in the third aspect, where is commercial deployment. So if you see the Indian government itself has come out with specific programs and schemes and incentives to incentivize the industry to at least start manufacturing uh, semiconductors, I mean, at first of a much higher uh, size and then progressively it will become like smaller and smaller. But this is where I think India has an, has an opportunity right now to, to establish itself at least as a major component of the supply chain uh, for semiconductors. So on that point, actually, that's very interesting because, yes, yeah, so India did miss out on the first two aspects of, of this technology's life, chain, this is the life cycle. However, there are still initiatives like the Risk Five Open Architecture (ISA) architect, which India is, is part of, is on the consortium, and India has been incentivizing the production of chips in in institutes like IIT, I think Chennai, is it, who are trying to uh, create homegrown semiconductors and processors using Risk technology to, um, you know, I know, essentially in not not in leading edge technology and use use cases, but in, in trailing edge like five G infrastructure or uh, smart devices, etc. Um, so I guess India is trying to still go about the R&D and standardization stages of, a, of, of, of semiconductor technology, but it, it has fallen woefully short of being integrated, the objective of being integrated into global supply chains for semiconductor. On that note, actually, let us say that this is a post-facto attempt by India to uh, you know uh, regulate the strategy of vulnerability in, in technology like this. So... What can help formulate India's course of action to ensure that they maintain this strategic autonomy? So speaking for myself, I know that the first and most obvious factor that comes to my mind is uh, any sort of deeper integration into global value chains is necessitated by implementing liberal trade policies. We have seen this with Ch- Taiwan, China, Vietnam, Thailand. They have, in, Since the 80s and 90s, they liberalized their tariff policies on input components, intermediate components, even final products. And they focus not simply on consumption for the domestic market, which is pretty huge in China's case, but also for export markets. It is a very targeted manner of governmental intervention. So aside from creating incentives of manufacturing, like India is doing right now with with production-linked incentives and other fiscal incentives like tax breaks, the primary reason why these countries began to, to specialize in their competitive advantage, which is cheaper labor costs, and cost competitiveness because of uh, low tariffs 
uh, meant that multinational entities were attracted these entities uh, were dominant in the value chains like amd intel qualcomm who let's say decided to come set up shop in that country because it was the easiest it is the most cost competitive for them to set up operations there what this also resulted in is is that local competency in those countries also rose like in engineers um assemblers uh, resellers etc they began to crop up as technology transfer from these companies also trickled down to those host economies right so um, this is possibly also the easiest way in which india can and create local competency and and acquire technologies if not for leading edge nodes in manufacturing semiconductors but at least in trailing edge nodes or more importantly in in assembly and testing right that is one of the easiest way in which we use our competitive advantage of uh, highly trained workforce in uh, whoever trained in like itis and in engineering colleges right um, aside from that this also helps us bridge a technological continuity that we don't have when it comes to developing a semiconductor manufacturing ecosystem what we do have is a fairly robust chip design sector i think around 20% of the world's chips leading chips design in india but all of that ip is still in the hands of multinational entities like nvidia and intel so in case we do create the assembly and and manufacturing ecosystem by by lowering tariffs implementing liberal trade policies alongside our pli schemes attracting these companies will probably help create like a forward linkage to that design ecosystem right we can have homegrown design companies be able to competitively manufacture or design chips and then be able to manufacture and package and uh, sell in india or for export markets so i mean i, I suppose this implementing a zero tariff regime for inputs and services which is necessary for different stages of value addition we can possibly use up the positions of china vietnam and thailand in the global semiconductor value chain but uh, do you think this approach can necessarily make up for the lost opportunity for india when it came to setting standards and regulation like that that is the entire reason why the the value chain is now currently fragmented and uh, are there any lessons for us when it comes to any other emerging technology i think i mean i do agree broadly i think i think in this one exa- example is also important that when we talk about you know like just doing assembly and you know lack of human capital and everything but it is a you know like long drawn process like for example china i mean it was like an assembler in in the very initial stages of its uh, growth right in industry and all like a lot of uh, technology either emerging or the standard one in which china has dominance now it only has that dominance because at first it it was part of the lower end of the value chain and then as it gained more expertise obviously I mean, it's more complicated but as it gained more expertise spent more money in in r&d it was able to you know like bridge that gap of uh, not having enough r&d and and then obviously when you have r&d when you do more research when you contribute to development of technology then you automatically in some cases would be able to influence the regulation and standards around that uh, technology so i think i think we, we should not be you know like uh, dismissing the fact that we are just uh, catching up onto the third stage of this life cycle because as india would produce more manufacture more even if it is just assembly or uh, like as you said uh, like uh, as part of the global supply chains we should idea i mean it is possible that we will build human capital and expertise within india which then can contribute to r&d and regulations down the line stay tuned to all things policy 
We'll be right back after a short commercial break. Okay, yeah, so that brings me a good point. So China did actually very specifically target manufacturing and export, sorry, governmental schemes to ensure that informational communication technology consumer products were targeted that specifically built capacity for those back in the 80s and 90s so that by now like they are the indisputable world leader in that it is extremely difficult to do so barring that point when you talk about human capital being the linchpin for any sort of research and development activity in a country what kind of factors do you think enable the a free movement of human capital between let's say collaborating countries in in transferring technology or expertise creating competency between academic institutions for example or the other like example that comes to my mind sorry for being in trade again in this is that free trade agreements between countries like let's say taiwan and india like for instance the taiwan semiconductor manufacturing corporation is incentivized to come set up a plant in india and in while doing so the technology transfer that occurs because of technology demonstration like they say that they provide instructions on how to operate Uh, lithography equipment like deep extreme ultraviolet lithography equipment in india where india has a zero experience i think as of now that is going to trickle down right so is there any other way in which human capital can be developed so to speak in a context where india is still playing catch up i mean when we are playing catch up I and mean, obviously i think we have to rely on the external sources because anything that you will do internally i mean for example i mean this is very basic for example if you want to improve your human capital it has to start with very basics you know health and education that's at the level of just high quality human capital but on top of that the quality of education in our uh, colleges and universities the amount of collaboration between industry and academia for uh, you know what industry wants what academia has and that like their dialogue between the two and then obviously the presence of like actual money right like funding for primary r&d whether it is public or private i mean all of these are very important i mean all these like take shift uh, together but these are like long term bets right you can't just throw money at something and then expect that the workforce that you have will magically improve overnight so this is a long process but as a stopgap measure I think being able to like collaborate with your partners and to be able to work with them would i think we'll be able to bridge the gap at least for time being So yeah, I think that's that's a, one thing that we can do at least. Okay, so so we have explored the the very first stage in in the life cycle of technology, which is our research and development. We also understand what it might take to catch up in the commercial deployment aspect of it. it it's still shrouded in mystery because of geopolitical um, reasons, I suppose. But when it comes to standardization and regulation, okay, in, in my in my limited experience of of this uh, particular aspect, standardization and regulation usually follows from the industry. creating like the market forces deciding a market leader and then that possibly being regulated by the government but when it comes to technologies like let's say in india for instance the united payments interface that is uh, the way in which you make payments throughout the country across any other platform something that has no other country has done until india did that may not be strategic in the sense that you know it, it's not not reliant on it but the regulation there was came preemptively before the actual deployment of the technology into the public that right? so the government created the national payments corporation of india before which then started uh, launching this platform so in this case when you did mention that none of the stages are necessarily linear and there can be overlaps but 
do you think that this is a trend that will continue to see in any sort of emerging technologies because even in the case of green technologies where the government might try to let's say push for greater adoption of electric vehicles and uh, charging infrastructure because it wants to combat climate change or uh, meet its uh, sdg goals and and carbon reduction goals so do you think that will probably end up seeing more examples of preemptive regulation and standardization before market leaders come into play i mean i would not see it that way i i don't think i would call it like a preemptive regulation because i mean before you regulate something you need to know what exactly that is right and so i, I think when i am saying about you know like r&d it is very basic primary r&d you would not even have something in the market until you have that r&d so like i am talking more about at that level so you have to have the proof of concept right that proof of concept aspect is the primary r&d and then i mean even regulations i mean they're also not not also right uh, linear so you have some technology it starts to get adopted there are more market players and once you reach a threshold of user base or at least familiarity that is when like the need for standards and regulation starts to happen and then it becomes like a process where it, it is more like a dialogue between industry academia and the government mostly because it is you know the, the, the one regulating but then that is where all these cogs you know like like of the wheel kind of come together so i would say that not preemptive regulation but the pace of regulation would have to increase or at least the regulations have to be a lot more flexible because the pace at which technologies are evolving and we are seeing more and more new use cases of technologies and, and new brand new technologies from scratch regulations usually play like a catch up to mm. technologies which are emerging so but i think the pace of that catch up will only accelerate so one thing could be to actually don't have a very restrictive set of regulations which actually turn to maybe reduce the the pace of innovation but make regulations which are light touch but also you know like they are more enabling they reduce the restrictive aspect and they facilitate the aspect where you know they allow for greater innovation so uh, regulatory sandboxes are one of the examples and up came out of it yeah. so these i think attempts i think should be made and i think they are being made but uh, i think that's just the nature of uh, pace of technology and regulation that regulation would usually always play catch up to the technologies of the day right on on that note so i understand the regulatory sandboxes and piloting of those are pretty viable in in a domestic landscape when you're developing technology domestically speaking the angle of strategic maintaining strategic autonomy or superiority in while doing that domestically may or may not be at the forefront but when you're looking at uh, let's say an in, international consortium of countries or organizations which are trying to come up with a after the research part is done trying to come up with a set of standards and ideas of governance of technology uh, internationally like i already mentioned the case of risk 5 which is there's an open source instruction set architecture for microprocessors and india is on the consortium board of consortium but how would india be in like what kind of angle can india take to maintain its strategic autonomy when it comes to negotiations creation of standards at on forums like this i mean it it really depends on the relative strength of that technology sorry of india in the technology right so if the technology is pretty like emerging it, it's new it's still taking shape and india has no role in trying to 
produce the technology, do R and D. So I think India's say would be very limited, right? I mean, as I mean, I guess as being like a big consumer and like big country in with, with global presence, there. I mean, India would still have a say, but that like its say would be more like not as the active producer or consumer of the technology. So I think the the vulnerability aspect here is that if there is a technology which has a, a, like significant implications to the economic security and national security of the country then that technology would be considered as critical and then the, then you would have to you know like take, take steps to reduce the vulnerability that comes from the technology either that is through dependence on others or it is through like not having enough regulation or not having enough say that is very dependent on the context of the technology right. and the strength of india in that domain right so so in order for india to have any sort of bargaining not bargaining but let's say negotiating power at the table on international international forums like this india so is it a is it a viable way to first become part of existing value chains and then use that integration as a bargaining chip yeah i mean like that, right? yeah i mean I'll not say even like bargaining. I mean, the, the point here is that people, I mean, why should somebody like listen to India on a technology, right? Because India has taken it. And mm-hmm. stake would either be the one that, okay, I am the one who produced the technology or I am the one who am okay. making the technology or I'm the one who consumes the technology. In all of those three, I mean, these the trends are different, right? For research, there's more IP. For car consumers, you're less because, you know, at the end, you're the consumer. So, I mean, obviously, it's a more complex uh, debate. But the point here is that you will have more say when you have skin in the game and skin in the game could be as a innovator as a manufacturer or as a consumer but unless you have a, any of these three i think it would be very difficult for india to voice its uh, stand in global regulatory bodies because again so like you have to have stake in that technology's success right. or effect for you to do something about it right so before we end this so so in the context of all that we discussed what would be a very easy definition of, well, not easy, sorry, very uh, simplistic definition of a strategic technological vulnerability for our listeners to understand? I, I would say that, again, to reiterate, if any technology which has significant impact either to accelerate or to like, negatively impact any impact on economic security or national security, of a country, that technology can be termed as critical and the relative position of, let's say, India in that technology ecosystem would be considered a vulnerability if you are not part of the ecosystem of the technology. Right. Thank you so much, Saurabh. That is all the time for today. And Saurabh's insights have proved immensely helpful in understanding what the idea of strategic technological vulnerability is, and particularly in the semiconductor ecosystem, which, by the way, we have a limited series coming up on all things policy soon. So please stay tuned. And I'm sure the listeners have gotten a very good idea of what the discussion implies. This is all for today's episode, folks. See you on the next episode. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, 
If you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in. Hey, hey, it's been another great week on the IVM Podcast Network. On All Things Policy, Ananya Desai and Rohan Pai discuss recurrent bans on fireworks during festive seasons in India and discuss possible solutions to tackle India's air pollution problem. On the Habit Coach podcast, Ashton Doctor welcomes Sahil Mehta, an esteemed mountaineer and author of the book Break Free. Sahil shares a transformative experience which became the catalyst for embracing discipline and fulfillment. The episode explores the profound impact of vulnerability on personal growth. Folks, if you like our shows, do spread the word. Tell your friends and don't forget to rate and review them wherever you're listening to them. Follow us on social media. We are IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. You'll also find all our shows on YouTube at youtube.com slash IVM Podcasts. And finally, we would like to thank our sponsors this week. Omidyar Network India, Abbott, IDFC First Bank and Save Life Foundation. Thank you for making this possible.